0: No less days, O oh Lord, to sing your praise than when we'd first begun, and we praise you today, Father, and in eternity we will praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Good morning. All right, I'm going to ask you to open the, to the book of Romans again this morning. Chapter 2, verse 17 through 29, that takes us to the end of chapter 2. Seems like a natural break there, and... Uh, You do know that the chapters are artificial, right? God didn't utter the chapters. Jesus didn't get up in the morning and say, Matthew, write chapter 2, verse 7. I'm going to start there this morning. (laughs) Added much later in the Reformation era. So we're going to read verses 17 through 29 this morning. And so Paul writes, Indeed, you who are called a Jew. Now don't turn off your thinking right now because you're not Jewish. Because this speaks to Christians as well. And that's a point I do expect to make this morning. So, you who are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish. A teacher of babes having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you teach yourself? You who preach that a man should steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are transgressors of the law? For he's not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he's a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men. But from God. Father, we ask that your Spirit would attend the reading and exposition of this, your holy word, this morning. O oh Lord, give us ears to hear the deep teachings of this, your written word. We pray in Jesus' name. I'm going to ask you at this time to open your Bibles to Romans chapter two, to, I'm sorry, to Matthew chapter 21. Um, you may remember last week when I went into the message, I, I first uh, included a couple of parables that were illustrative of the points made by the apostle. And last week we turned to 2 Samuel and we talked about Nathan confronting David. Remember all of that? And we talked about some of the parables. So just to introduce what it seems to me is the core teaching of this section of Romans, I want to turn to a parable of the Lord Jesus. And it appears in Matthew 21, verse 28. It's called the parable of the two sons. And it reads like this. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples. He said, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it, and he went. Then he came to the second and said likewise, and he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, The first. And Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent, and believe him. Doing, friends, is the proof of saying. You know, saying is very, very easy when you think about it. Karen and I watch all sorts of news presentations and media, and we are amazed at what people will allow out of their mouth and expect us to believe it. There is just so much falsehood and suppression of truth going on in the world. It's just so easy to say something. It's easy to say, I'm a Jew. I'm sanctified. I'm justified by the written law of God. It's easy to say, I'm circumcised. The sign of covenant with God, son of Abraham. It's easy to say, oh, I made my profession of faith to Jesus Christ when I was 14. It's easy to say that. But what have you done for me lately? Is what Paul is basically saying here to the Romans. So I want to go, as we usually do when we get into this, is look at a little bit of review from previous weeks. And so I want to focus here on verse 21 this morning. Paul uh, actually writing to Jews, but remember the audience is a church. He's writing to Christian Jews within the church. And so he says, you therefore who teach another, do you teach yourself? Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Similarly, he said, but if, We would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we're judged, we're chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Judge yourselves truly, and you will not be judged, he says. This represents, in essence, the meaning of the text we have before us. It's such a product, friends, of sin, of the original sin in us from our wayward parents in the garden This represents a product of that sin that we fear, in fact, we hate chastisement, that we may miss the blessing of the Lord in it. Friends, when the Lord is chastising the Christian, rather than rebel against it, rather than recoil with a how-dare-you-say-such-things-to-me attitude, why don't we recognize that chastisement is the sign of the love of the Lord? And I'll demonstrate that here from the Word. So the apostle here is speaking for God, and he does not shrink from the duties of his leadership in this in the same way that Nathan didn't shrink from it when he had to approach the king. You remember what I'm talking about. We may even say it this way. He doesn't shrink from his duties of leadership, but he doesn't shrink from his duties of fathership. It is a father who chastises his son. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. You know the verse. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He scourges every son whom he receives. And if you endure the chastening, God will deal with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? None of us was that good. Our fathers needed to hold us in line. It's the same in our Christian life. And we have leaders, loved ones, father figures, the apostle himself, all saying this to the church. It's time that you take the chastisement and look into your souls and rework the truth or falsehood of your profession. Reevaluate it. Reevaluate your stance in Christ. So, in order that we may approach this section of our text rightly this morning, we should refresh our minds with some of the lessons of the previous weeks. We should remember, first of all, that French scripture is a wonderful thing. Imagine. We have it in our hands. It took 1,600 years for it even to be written. It took 40 diverse authors from all over the world to write it. It took centuries of translators to bring it down and secure it down through the ages. It took smugglers (laughs) to smuggle the illegal translated Bibles around the world in German and English and all the languages that the Protestant church revels in today, that we have the Word of God in our own language in front of us. It's an amazing blessing. Scripture is a wonderful thing. But not if it's sitting over there with the dust piling up on it. You know, in the first century, they didn't have neat little Bible books like we have today. You were lucky if you were a first-century Christian. In fact, you were lucky if you were a fifth-century Christian and you had any more than one epistle or one of the Gospels in your hand. Very, very expensive to produce something like this in those days. So Scripture's a wonderful thing. Friends, truth, though it has fallen on hard times, right? Truth has definitely fallen on hard times. People, You know why people don't know what the truth is? Because they don't even believe it exists. They don't believe they can know the truth. All you can know is your opinion about what you're calling the truth. But the Holy Spirit says no. He teaches us the truth of God's word. We're the only ones that know, and we know that we know. And all you can do, it's very difficult to convince. You never really convince someone of your, of your philosophy of salvation. You never really convince them of that. All you can do really is present it. You can give evidences, you can give your testimony, you can talk about the people that have been saved, whose lives have been transformed, and all those are powerful things, but unless the Holy Spirit moves upon their soul and lets truth shine through, they'll not be saved. Truth is a wonderful thing, friends. Knowledge, though it is in short supply, is a wonderful thing as well. You see the, the media guys out there on the streets of the cities asking people who's the president of the United States or what war did uh, George Washington fight in or who was the president during the Civil War and everybody's in a quandary and doesn't know and wants hints and wants one phone call. Knowledge is in short supply. Friends, it's been part of my ministry for 26 years to make sure it's not in short supply here. And, and I have to first make sure it's not in short supply here. And it's always shorter than you would hope. Friends, preaching and reading and contemplating all the wonderful, powerful promises of Christ and salvation are good and advantageous things. And the gospel is the principal thing. That's the principal piece of knowledge, the gospel, right? The gospel's the binding agent that all good Christian people are bound by. And so he writes to them in Rome, the Christians in Rome. He introduces himself as in his apostle of Jesus Christ. And he said this, remember from chapter 1, I am Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, separated to the gospel. He could have said consecrated. Same thing. Separated to the gospel, which he promised before through his prophets. Who knew that the Old Testament preached to the gospel? I'll tell you who. The writer of Hebrews. Because he wrote this. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There's the gospel. The seed of Abraham would be Jesus Christ, and all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. Gospel preached in ancient times. And so Paul says it again here. He says he Um, separated to the gospel of God which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. Concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. If you are receiving this letter because you're, where the Christians are gathering in Rome, and make no mistake, friends, Christians must gather. And they must gather On the appointed day. And the appointed day is the first day of the week. The Christian Sabbath. And that's when they gather. And that's why these epistles were effective. Because Paul knew they would be gathered there. When the pastors, when the leaders of the church received his epistle. As the man appointed by God to teach the church. They would read it aloud and they would all know the truths that were written herein. And they would do what we're doing. They would preach from the book of Romans. It's plenty to preach from. Now, what did I do the first the first chapter, three weeks, maybe four, Martin Lloyd Jones did twenty. I mean, you can break these things down piece by piece I, I I like to feel a little movement in it, and that's why I do that um, but there's so much truth here. Paul is teaching this to the Christians in case they didn't know things that they were supposed to know, like the Old Testament is united with the New Testament it's one. Organic message from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. It's one gospel, all right? And so he adds this wonderful, affectionate introduction. He says, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father. That's his benediction. That's his blessing upon those people, some of whom he knows, but most of whom he doesn't. And he said, I thank God. Let this be my prayer that I say directly to our church this morning. I thank God through Jesus Christ for you all. That your faith is spoken of throughout the world. Your faith is spoken of throughout the world. On YouTube and on Zoom. And so this introduction reminds us that the gospel of Christ is a blessing to all nations and to the whole world. And so Paul this morning is going to single out the Jews. He's going to speak to them personally about the stumbling blocks that are readily in their path and that he as a Jew is aware that they probably will stumble over. And though the Lord in his wisdom offered special revelation to his own people, the Jews, the standard for salvation is the same among them as it is among all nations. You'll be judged for your sins, no matter who you are. It's the sin that will be judged. Because from... Chapter 2, verse 2, we read, because we know the judgment of God is according to truth, not according to the person, but according to the sin. He's no respecter of persons, but he is a respecter of sin, and he respects it the same in the Jew as in the Gentile, you see. And so he embarks on this discourse to apprise his readers that all men are sinners, and therefore all men are in need of the gospel. And he wants to make sure the Jews know this. Because their pedigree is a stumbling block. Their lineage is a stumbling block. John the Baptist started right in with that very thing, which we'll get to. The Jews, he admits, were given special treatment. There's no question. He writes this in chapter 3. What advantage then has the Jew? Much in every way. Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. What an awesome thing. Of all the people of the earth, this strange little nomadic group had the word of God. And no one else had it. It's my belief that's why he gave it to them. He knew they would preserve it. Other nations would feel free to add to it, take away, write out sections. The Jews didn't do that. They kept it scrupulously. It's who and what they were. And so he he reminds us that preaching, apart from application, is an empty thing. Preaching apart from application is an empty thing. That's why he says, and do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Friends, what good is preaching without an application? That's saying and not doing. Oh, wonderful sermon, Pastor. That's saying. I appreciate it. It's good to hear that you've been immersed in the, in, the, in the word and paid attention this morning, that's good to hear. I already know it's a good sermon, but I'm glad that you find out. <laughs> friends, without acting, hearing apart from doing is an empty thing. But it's worse than empty, friends. Because those who have heard the gospel and turned from it are in greater danger than those who have never heard it at all. And I hope I've demonstrated that to you in the past couple of weeks. So he continues on this course reminding the church of the importance of sincerity of belief. Truth in profession. You made a profession, a confession of faith. Where's the truth in it? The truth is validated by a life's walk in that truth that you profess. Recognition of one's own desperate need for Christ is part of the profession. And he's trying to make the Jews feel desperate for their salvation because he senses they're not so desperate as they need to be. Preaching's a great thing, but it must be applied. Teaching is great also, but it must be lived. The spiritual disciplines in general are good and beneficial so long as there's fruit from them, friends. Scripture reading's a good discipline. But reading for enjoyment, friends, is for the unbeliever. The believer's reading is feeding. And feeding is to empower us to live our faith outwardly. We're charging ourselves up with the Word. It isn't like, oh, I'll cuddle up in front of the fire tonight and read some encouraging things with Psalms. (laughs) And I got no problem with reading Psalms, and let me tell you, they're not all that encouraging. Some are, some aren't. Some are very convicting. So read them in order, and you'll get both. Reading for enjoyment alone, scripture reading, is for the unbeliever, friends. That's for the college professor. Karen and I had college professors who taught us Old and New Testament who didn't believe one word of what they were teaching and admitted it. And so the oft-repeated refrain of the New Testament is expressed here as well. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Romans 2.13 So Paul singles out his fellow Jews in this text. However, we should keep in mind that the letter's addressed to Christians. As I've said, right? As he said, your faith in Christ is made known to all the world. I thank God for you, he said. So it would not be wrong to assume that the Jews he's addressing are those of the church who have made their profession to Christ. Jews outside the church wouldn't receive the letter, right? He's not writing to the Jews of Rome. He's writing to the Christians of Rome, and some are Jews and some are Gentiles. And if we're apprised of this apostle's intent in writing, it's to ensure that a church that was founded by someone other than himself is aware of the true doctrines of the church and of the gospel of Christ. Friends, it doesn't matter who founds the church; it matters upon which doctrines they found it. That's what matters. And the gospel of Christ shows no special favoritism to Jews over Gentiles. And he's teaching that to Jews. He taught that to Peter at Antioch. And we find that out from reading the book of Galatians, when he said, Peter played the hypocrite with the Jews when they came to Antioch, and I had to withstand him to his face, because he was to be blamed. Even the apostles had this struggle between themselves as Jews. And that fact made up much of the text from last week, from a previous section of this chapter... It's assumed by Paul, friends, himself a Jew, himself a condemner of Gentiles, himself a persecutor of the church, that his fellow Jews are misinformed with regard to the purpose of Christ's gospel, and he comes to inform them. The gospel is there to save them as well as their Gentile counterparts. You know who the Judaizers were in that time, the time of the apostles? The Judaizers with those group of professed Christians who were trying to teach the Gentiles they had to become Jewish in order to become Christian. They had to be circumcised, for instance, which I'm going to talk about. That's what Paul talks about, circumcision here. He was teaching them you had to go through all the... You had to go through what we went through for the last 1,600 years. You have to go through that. And do all the things we did and make your animal sacrifices and do all these things and then and follow all the rigid legalistic laws of Judaism and then you can become a Christian. And they were wrong in that. And John and Paul in the, in the first century um, you know, apostles and church leaders fought against the Judaizers. That was one of the great factions in the church at the time. So I have no doubt that that's kind of the thing he's aiming at here. And so the Jewish need for salvation is as great as it is for other men. You're not just saved because you're just Jewish. The gospel's for Jews, it's for Gentiles, and any distinction that's entertained with regard to one group being more or less in need of salvation than another group is an artificial distinction, and it needs to be abandoned. It's a wrong doctrine. And so the charge of hypocrisy is voiced again. Oh, that dreaded charge of hypocrisy. There's an easy charge to make. Everybody in some way has failed himself in his profession. It's easy in an argument to point it out. The idea that as Jews, they would say, we're in possession of God's special treatment throughout the centuries, and so we're in some ways exempt from the requirements of salvation, is a false Jewish perception. We're the keepers of the law, they would say. We're the ones entrusted with holy writ. We're the special object of God's affections. And therefore, though we've come to regard the cross of Christ as the fulfillment of what is written, we're exempt from the requirements of it due to our special status before God. You all fall down. We were born into it. You see what he's fighting against here? The blood of Christ is for others. It's not for ourselves, they would say, for we're the keepers of the law and so justified by our ethnic relation to Abraham, our cultural immersion in ceremonial law, our lifelong practice of ritual sacrifice and temple worship. We did all these things. We're justified. Paul saying, no, your need is just as great as the Gentile. So Paul sets out to demolish these ideas that would insulate his own countrymen from the benefit of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Friends, you can't benefit from Christ's blood if you don't know your need for it. We never come to Christ confident. Do we come to Christ confident? Imagine walking up to the last judgment. Done pretty good. What do you think? You can't come to Christ like that. No man comes confident. Jeez, too bad about those sinners over there, Jesus. You don't come like that. You don't come with your your pedigree or your roster of religious practices or your human credentials for accomplishments that can commend us. Why, I was head of the adult Sunday school. We come on our knees, seeing our need for atonement, and never, never on the basis of being pre-approved. You ever get pre-approved by a bank? You don't get that with the gospel. It's like, no, I can come anytime. I'm I'm pre-approved. I get the whole thing. You know, my, my score was high, and so I get... I get the whole pre-approval. Pe- friends, we don't come to Christ as someone applying for a job with a reference in our hand from, from other people, from dignitaries who will vouch for our personal worthiness and our good character, you know, the uncle who loves you. Oh, you're looking at my sin too deeply, Lord. You need to hear what my uncle says about me. He thinks I'm really good. You don't come to God with references. You can't say, well, I'm a son of Abraham. I got all the, I got all the documents to show the, my birth and pedigree. So the apostle fears for his fellow Jews in this regard, for false commendation produces false security. And friends, false security is worse than no security at all. And so he writes this, indeed, you're called to Jew, and you rest on the law, and you make your boast in God, and you know his will. They don't realize they're condemning themselves by knowing so much about God and not following through. And you approve the things that are excellent, you're instructed out of the law, you're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Temple robbing was a big practice in those days. The Jews hated idols. Or so they said. They had times in their history where they absolutely loved the idols. But they would say, see what I mean? It's easy to say and not do. But guess what? They robbed temples. It was rampant in those days because pagan temples were full of expensive things. So they would rob idols even though they hated idols. You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Because of what? Because of your walk. Because of your sinful practices. You're blaspheming God by claiming to be one of his people. And it's helpful always to keep in mind the subject of the apostles' entire teaching from what's been said thus far and what I've preached on thus far. The theme of this section, friends, from the epistle is from chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. That's what He's still on that subject. I don't want to lose sight of that. He's showing them why and how the wrath of God is on them, even though they're Jewish, even though they may have made a Christian profession but don't live it. Truth, it seems, is as much suppressed by actions as by words. He says, your actions are blaspheming the Lord. It's as much suppressed by inactions as by inaccurate words. Some things you should do, some things you shouldn't do, right? They're both actions. Those who profess Christ rightly are those who walk rightly. Paul wrote to the pastor of another church. He said this, be diligent to present yourself approved to God A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Accuracy in doctrine. He's clearing up their doctrine. And you know, it's not good enough in doctrine to be almost right, because that can separate you from God. Not in the essentials. So thus far, friends, Paul's text is not concerned with salvation. He hasn't gotten there yet. What he's discussing, he's not... Laying out the path to salvation yet in the text. His subject thus far in the text is wholly concerned with the need for salvation. Then he'll show you the path. He wants them to fall on their knees and say, Is there no hope? It sounds so hopeless, Paul. And the need's universal, no matter who you are. It's to all men alike. There are no special classes of persons who are exempt. He's concerned to make certain that anyone who approaches the cross rightly must come in a posture of neediness of brokenness, of utter sinfulness before God. So he hasn't laid out the plan of salvation so far. He's taken all this time, 20 sermons by Martin Lloyd-Jones, to just show us our need. To give a more contemporary analogy, which I think will be quite readily understood by this group of people before us today is the idea that there are special classes of, per, uh, of persons who are exempt, and for that we may look to Rome, current-day Rome. It's current practices of, say, doing penance, praying to idols, eating the Eucharist, saying the rosary, making pilgrimages to sh- shrines, and a whole host of other things that serve to delude the seeker into believing that there are qualifying rituals that replace genuine spiritual contrition and a personal recognition of one's need for Christ and Christ alone. These things cloud our view and we see those as qualifying steps as we work our way to salvation, you see. They even had the Scala Sancta, the Holy Stairs in Rome and Martin Luther went up them on his knees and prayed the rosary on every step, hoping that he was getting closer and closer to earning his salvation before God by doing all these things. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Friends, the ritual, the prayer, the baptism, the mass, these are artificial human additions to sanctification and a mere spiritualized tinsel. Religious practices don't save. Christ saves. Sprinkling our lives with superfluous ritual cannot save. Christ saves. Adoration of the host... As the priest raises it up in the mast, in the mass rather, cannot save, Christ saves. Candle lighting, stations of the cross, mariolatry, various anointings cannot save, only Christ can save. And these things masquerade as other saving rituals and ought to be abandoned. And the Jews had these same things, you see. And so for the Jewish believer in the Church of Rome, bloodlines to the patriarchs cannot save. Ritual sacrifices cannot save. Immersion in Jewish culture and ritual admit as as much sin as immersion in pagan culture. And so these things cannot save. But still Christ saves. Christ may yet be found. The endless Onion skin of rite and ritual being peeled away to reveal that bloody cross of a dying Savior is what we have to do and what Paul is doing for these Jews. The saving words may yet be uttered in your unbelief. Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. So the apostle goes further. He says that presenting empty things as saving things is the very suppression of truth that God abhors. For the things of God could be known, friends. The things of God should be known. But the revelation of God has been clouded by layer upon layer of profane man-made ritual. And ritual has clouded truth. And ritual has replaced truth for the Jew. Ritual has replaced it for the Catholic, friends. And that's the reason. That's the offense that put the whole world under the wrath of God. That we replaced the one true Christ with rituals hoping that at last they would measure up to merit of salvation. And that's the reason. That's the offense that put the whole world under the wrath of God. It's these things that represent the core attribute of the depraved mind, friends. Men do as much damage by a pretense of righteousness than they do by a neglect of righteousness. And that was the message of John the Baptist When he said to the Pharisees and the Sadducees as they came out to his baptism, he said, there comes one after me who's mightier than I, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. When John came preaching, he said to the religious class who came to his meetings, he said, brood of vipers. Who warned you? You talk about being judgmental. A whole group of people come out. He calls them brood of vipers. You who, who, who warned you, rather, to flee the wrath to come, therefore bear fruit worthy of repentance. In other words, stop doing the things you're doing and do these things if you want to show to me that you're worthy of my baptism. Do not think to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God's able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the the axe is laid to the root of the trees, therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. How's that for a gospel sermon? Close the book, go home. Meditate on that for a while. We'll see in the next chapter, the wrath of God is on the whole world of men, friends, not because they're broken and bruised by sin, but because they're totally ruined in the ravages of sin. They've changed the glory of God. They've exchanged the blessed truth for the abhorrent lie. They have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so they covered, friends, they camouflaged the pathway to the cross with all the ritual. And Paul's stripping it away. And that's what we do in the Reformed churches. We strip away the ritual. They've littered the entrance to the narrow road with superfluous extravagances. They cut down tree branches and threw them in front of the entrance to the narrow gate. That's what these rituals did. And what sinner's not enamored, friends, with superfluous extravagances so that they may boast of their sacrificial devotion to ritual, blind to the tragedy that their rituals replaced their God. I go to Mass every day, sometimes twice. Hallelujah. And so... Without knowing, they're left with no hope. There's no way out. There's no escape from its condemnation apart from falling at the cross for redemption. Lloyd-Jones said it this way, The whole object of the apostle from chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 3 verse 20 is to prove that no flesh is justified in the presence of God. The apostle here is setting out to prove, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Verses 28 and 29, for he's not a Jew who is one outwardly, the one who comes with the robes. Remember Jesus when they came out with their, with their robes, their whitewashed robes, and their, and their um, embroidered scripture on the lapels and the, and the uh, hems of their garments, and they looked regal, and he said, you're like whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. He's not a Jew who's one outwardly. You don't just get to put the cloak on nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. In other words, that mark you got when you were eight days old ain't going to save you neither. But he's a Jew who's one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart. That goes back to Ezekiel, that whole circumcision of the heart thing. Circumcision of the heart, of the spirit. Has your heart been cut? And that means your spirit, by the way. Not in letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. I hope we can make this leap, friends, with the apostle this morning, and that is that there is no profit in empty ritual. But friends, rituals rightly conceived and rightly practiced have some benefit and approbation from God. Friends, it would be wrong to be a Jew and to not be circumcised in that time. That would be wrong. That was the law of God. But it's just as wrong for him to be circumcised and to engage in the same sins of the uncircumcised. That's his point. This is the sign in the flesh that you don't do those things. And I would add at this juncture that the same could be said of the Christian's relationship to baptism. Friends, baptism isn't an option, it's a command of God. It's wrong for the believer not to be baptized as the God ordained sign of faith in Christ. Now, when we make our profession of faith, we're baptized. It's wrong not to be. You're not supposed to go around your life not baptized and be a Christian. Friends, the first command of Christ when you come to him is be baptized. Make the testimony. Receive the outward sign. It won't save you, but it's still a sacred thing. It's not a man-made ritual. It's God-ordained, and it's therefore good. Baptism is good, but it's not saving. That's not the reason for it. It has no power to lead you into right or wrong actions. It, baptism has no power to lead you into right or wrong beliefs or faith or unbelief. It's you, friends, who must be true to your baptismal pledge, not your pledge that has to be true to you. And you may not plead with your Catholic friends that you were saved by the waters of baptism, which I have heard said so many times at, ba- at uh, Catholic funerals. You're not free to say with your Catholic friends that you were saved by the waters of baptism and therefore free to spend your life in sin as I've seen it done and uttered so many times in my life and a lot of you are shaking your heads up and down, by the way. Rituals in and of themselves come with a moral neutrality. But the rituals given by God are tokens or ought to be tokens of obedience to God. Think of it. It's one thing to be circumcised on the eighth day after birth as a sign of the covenant of God, that you've been blessed to be born among the chosen of God. That's one thing, you were a baby, eight days old. it was put upon you. But consider those who convert to Judaism in adulthood. I would say to you, gentlemen, that to commit to circumcision in adulthood is a far greater sign of personal commitment than it is to have thrust upon you as an infant. And there are examples in it in the old, of it in the Old Testament. Such a man surely recognizes the moral intent of the ritual, right? He's willing to pay the price. That's why we don't speak of covenants being made, but of covenants being cut. You cut a covenant. Another consideration circumcision is the sign of the covenant, but it isn't a thing to be displayed. It's covered. You won't win any arguments by showing it off, it's hidden. It's the actions of the covenant-bearer that either display or betray him as a man of God. That's Paul's point. They don't see the circumcision. They see the proof of the circumcision in the things you believe and live by. And the same may be said of baptism. And so Paul makes what ought to be an obvious point. The outward remains a sign only, friends. It's inward devotion to truth. What do you do when no one's looking? kind of thing. It's the actual sign of the people of God, that inward circumcision. It must be of the heart, he said. And so he says he is a Jew who was one inwardly. And the same is true of the Christian. But the teaching here is for the Christian. And when you were baptized, you received the praises of men, and it was done as a witness for all to see. But what you do and how you act The devotion you offer to God is a daily offering, is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ in you. So whether you're a Jew or a Christian or a Christian Jew or a pagan convert, the outward signs are not the measure of sincere devotion to God. It's the inward sign. For circumcision is of the heart, the apostle wrote. It's in the spirit. It's not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. So this apostle, friend, is God's man in his time to inform the church of what really resides in the inward parts of man. And his portrayal of this is not a pretty thing. It's an ugly thing. It's an evil thing. And that's why he can say in chapter 3, there is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. Their tongues have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. He's talking about men in general. And so the wrath of God is upon man. And he's building our recognition of our need for salvation. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. They're whitewashed tombs, but they're full of dead things. And all the ritual in the world, friends, all the self-deception, all the self-esteem cannot absolve us from sin. Well, I'm feeling pretty good about myself today. Don't need absolution. Feeling pretty good. So we all fall at the foot of the cross at the feet of bleeding Jesus. We plead our faith in our dying Savior as the thief on the cross did plead his faith. And we receive the promise you will be with me in paradise. And then there's the application, which validates the plea. From the book of James. We've all been apprised that faith is without works is dead. He said, show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, friends, the works are important, but they won't save you. And it isn't like, well, I made the profession. I, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I'll just follow through with the works. It's not that either. The Holy Spirit should instill in you a delight to do God's will. David was under the law, but he didn't even know it. I delight to do your law. It's not a law if you delight in it. And yet another apostle said it this way. Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Add some things to it. To virtue, add knowledge. Friends, knowledge is important. To knowledge, add self-control. To self-control, perseverance. In other words, keep it up. To perseverance, add godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound you'll be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his own sins. Our Father, we ask you to lead us rightly in these great admonishments and encouragements from the apostles, O Lord. Let us ever examine ourselves honestly, Father make appraisal of our state before Christ and come pleading to him for salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.